0: Hello and welcome to the Get French Football News show. A lot of clever people say that to win a football match you have to score more goals than the other team. Clearly they haven't heard of Lyon and they haven't heard of this outdated European rule that you know people have become critical of which is VAR and it allows you to get that penalty you need so badly and go through against Juventus. It's Juventus two, Lyon one. Lyon are through to the quarterfinals of the Champions League. There are two French teams in the Champions League quarterfinals for the first time in 10 years. And needless to say, everyone here at GFFN is super stoked about that. And uh, we're here to share that excitement. And hopefully my panel will have something intelligent to say about the match. I was just too happy to even pay attention by the end of this match. Um, So I'm your host, Pierre-Paul Bergamingham, and the panel to which I am referring is here with me. We have Kale Stockwell. Hey, Kale.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Really excited to get stuck in.
0: Great to have you on. And Eric DeVin. Hi, Eric. Hey. Hey,
2: Pierre-Paul. Hey, Kale. How's it going, guys? Uh, Yes, tremendous results and and, uh, really enjoyable to watch.
0: Yeah, amazing stuff. Um, I mean, where do we want to start on this one, guys? (laughs) Because... I feel like we're going to have to talk about the refereeing at some point. But, you know, that I'm the host and I hate talking about refereeing. So how about I give you one minute each to get rid of that bit and then we can talk about the more joyous stuff. Who wants to start? I can I can take this one off. I mean,
2: yeah, it's uh, the the Memphis penalty, I think, is, is really the flashpoint for me in terms of that. Um, I mean, to see that given in, in such a match as you mean you the know, one he
0: scored or the one he conceded the one he conceded uh
2: yeah I think that was that was really difficult um yeah I think there were a couple yellow card decisions that were a little bit soft as well um yeah not not the best night for uh Veitch Spire, the what was the referee's name
1: mm-hmm. uh so like Spire
2: yeah Spire uh yeah so I I think that you know there's really nothing that Memphis can do in that situation you know, I know that there are these new, new and updated handball rules, but I, I think that that even still, that's a little harsh. And to not even look at it uh, in VAR just uh, was kind of a shock to me.
0: Okay. Any additional thoughts, Kale? Your one chance.
1: Uh, I I think Eric basically nails it. I, I think he, he the main point that he makes that that I was thinking the whole time is like. Just go look at the screen. I did not understand why he didn't just jog over and take a look at the handball. I, baffling.
0: And that's the kind of question we've heard a lot in the past year or more, and I don't have answers to, and I don't really want to answer. Uh, another day, I might tell you guys about my theory I have, which um, would eliminate penalties. It's not a theory. It's a, it's a proposition to change the rules of football, but maybe this isn't the best time. Let's talk about Lyon. Eric, uh, we talked on the preview show we, you know, how does Rudy Garcia's performance compare to what you had predicted or what you were hoping for not to play for the nil-nil, try to get out the, the goal, try to get the goal early on, which they did. And, uh, you know, see what would happen from there. Well,
2: I think that the, the team executed the plan to you know, exactly as they had hoped to. You know, we talked a little bit about uh, before about how he I thought he needed to make some brave decisions with this with this eleven, and I think he made those. I think bringing in Carl Toko Okambi, uh to you know to, st- to stress the defense a little bit made sense. Uh, I mm-hmm. think that uh, Kakarai was once again brilliant. I think that you know even if Aouar does end up leaving this summer, this this midfield's in more than fine shape, and that you know his his energy and his vision, uh, you know it just seemed that there were moments that he was. His brain was playing ahead of his teammates in the range of passing he made and the sense of anticipation that he had. That, you know, were things to be a little bit more on the same wavelength, I think Leon could have had a little bit more cohesion, a little bit more possession, and perhaps played a little bit less, um, a little bit less all guns blazing, as it were. Uh, but, but nevertheless, I, I think that this team, you know, did well. I think that the Corne had, uh, you know, a decent match as well. Um, you know, as a A player that, you know, few would have expected to, you know, to become, you know, not an orthodox left back, but a left sided player with quite a bit of defensive responsibility. So I think that, you know, you you might take some caveats, but the point is job done. uh, And based on the selection, job done by the selections, selections that Garcia made. And that's really the
1: bottom line.
0: Yeah. and, And so that penalty came pretty early on, about 10 or 15 minutes in. And, and Kale, from there, you know, sometimes people are scared. Well, I get scared by this, but not necessarily everyone that, you know, when you score too early, if, if that's, uh, you know, if you understand what I mean by that, it can kind of cost you later. And Juventus definitely came back into the game. What did you think to, of how Lyon responded to um, their first goal, that the penalty that Memphis scored and the way they played from from then on?
1: I thought it was pretty decent. I mean, I think the thing about Juventus, and a lot of people said this in lead-up, uh, so it's not really an original thought, but they're just not that dangerous. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're just mm-hmm. not as dangerous as they have been in the past. So I think I always felt like if Lyon could get a goal early and sit back and absorb that pressure, they'd probably be okay. I The only thing I would say is I think they were having some issues on the right side of their defense with uh, Dubois and Denayer and Cacare, just because that seemed to be where Juventus was doing most of their rotating. And I think if I had to criticize one thing uh, about the match, it would be that Garcia may have taken a little bit too long to make the adjustments to sort of close that area up. But ultimately, I think... you this is their second competitive fixture in something like five and a half months, you know, so there's going to be some rust. Mm-hmm. There's, they're not going to make the passes that maybe we're used to. They're not going to be as concise or dynamic as we want them to be potentially. But for your second match, your second competitive match in five and a half months, I think, I think they did an admirable job.
0: Yeah. So what adjustments was, did they, did Garcia make, um, you mentioned there on the right side?
1: Uh, I thought when he switched, or at least I saw it as, a switch to a 4-2-3-1 when uh, not, I think it was after the second drinks break, uh, Denaire had Mm -hmm. come off, I'm assuming through injury, and Marcelo was then on that side. And I think he made the decision at that point, okay, I'm going to change my formation a little bit. Uh, And that, I think, closed Juventus up a little bit. I think they were finding a lot of space, I found, they were finding a lot of space behind Dubois, sort of in between Dubois and Denaire especially Rabiot, who was getting into that channel. And then that allowed uh, Ronaldo to rotate onto Marcelo, which I think they were trying to do most of the match. And this was a really sort of easy way for them to do that. Once he made that change, that became more difficult because they had that double pivot and then the three other midfielders so they could play a, a, a 4-4-2 low block, which allowed them to stretch out their midfield a little bit more, made it more complicated for Juventus to try and break through and get to that final defensive line
0: yeah that's a that's a great observation. I thought you know, on the other side they had a couple of worries too, um, especially when bernadeschi got on, got around one time and sent Lopez, you know flying <laughs> into the middle of nowhere and then there was a heroic tackle from from Marcelo just a meter away from the goal to to, to save that because you know Lopez was completely gone and Bernardeschi had an open goal ahead of him. Um, I mean that was one of the highlights of the match without a question. Um, but yeah, I kind of picked up on, on Marcel, um, more so on the ball, actually being a little bit worried and, and kind of hooving it long. I don't know if Eric, you would ag- agree with that observation.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, you know, he, I think this is a player who we've seen in his time at Ligue 1, that he's a fantastic player at getting forward, but you know, much like Corne, he's being asked to play in a much more negative, not negative, but a much more defensively oriented role. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, whereas as a left back, he might get out of trouble by trying to run with the ball. Uh, I think that, you know, he, since he didn't quite have that option against, uh, against Juventus's midfield, that he could be, you know, literally running into trouble where he tried to use possession or his dribbling ability to get, to get out of it. And that, uh, you know, he, he was left with few options. And again, that, you know, as, as we rightly said, I think that that, that gave Leon some a lack of coherence in terms of their attack that, they were so short on possession as a result of, of this, you know, I, I think that we think mm. about, you know, those center backs who do have a good range of passing is being, you know, really successful at this type of play. But, you know, Marcel is, you know, I, I think he's in there more for his pace than anything else. And I think that seeing that be the case, uh, you know, he did do a good job, but in terms of building play from the back, you know, he's never going to yeah. be, the sort of player who, upon which he can hang his hat on that.
0: Yeah. But also I thought, um, so, I mean, we've picked up on how Lyon were, uh, you know, kind of absorb the pressure and, and, and let Juve try to kind of, you know, like a wave hitting against a seawall against them. But but I thought that some of the best moments from Lyon in the match were they had these phases of two or three minutes every, every so often on the ball where they were, they had a nice crisp passing very uh strong technically with you know each player and, and i mean like in a, in a kind of dribbling sense a lot of players uh achieving some some really good moves and 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 getting rid of defenders like that i mean kakre had some uh Dep- depai even Cornet, for example Awar, of course too um and i i mean i thought some of those phases were really astonishing football and i would have liked to see more of it now maybe I don't know if that was that would be imprudent, or uh, and it's just me, you know, enjoying the good football bits. But definitely, Leon could have posed a more uh, more of an attacking threat. Was was what I thought.
1: Yeah, I think at times Garcia, as a manager in these bigger games, has a tendency to be perhaps a little bit too deferential, mm. and there were definitely moments of that in the first half. I think. By the time he made that change in the second half, Lyon actually started playing more with the ball, and I thought they controlled more of the game as the game progressed, if that makes sense. Uh, I, I mean, Eric alluded to this earlier, but I think that midfield is, uh, maybe I don't want to say underrated, but it's kind of underrated. I, I think Bruno, Cacré, Awar, these guys are really good ball retention players. They're really good passers. They're generally yeah. pretty calm. They can dribble in midfield as well. They can create space for themselves. I think that's, that is the makings of a really, really dynamic three.
0: Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. Um, should we talk about Maxence Cacré, who, um, you know, maybe the greater uh, footballing audiences aren't familiar with him yet because he's played so few games with Lyon? Like, I think he's played eight games in in Ligue 1, and this is his first in Champions League. Um, but he's... Uh, what an astonishing player. I mean, he, he he looks, first of all, like, you know, if Alain Delon were a footballer, he would look like Maxence Cacré and play like Maxence Cacré. Um, but also, uh, you know, just so calm on the ball, so skillful. It's going to be interesting
2: to see how this team evolves in the if if our does... Uh... Does lead. Because I think that with Kakre and, and, and Guimaraes, you've got a nice balance there in terms of midfielders who can be not more negative, but more prosaic in their play and, and and control the match a little bit more. Um, with Auer, you've got someone who's creative, could also hold the ball. And I think that, you know, it looks to probably be Jeffrey Navaid, who will take this, this spot in midfield mm-hmm. uh, if Auer does go. And it'll be really interesting to see how the team evolves tactically as a result of that. Um you know, there's also the question of what to do on the right flank. Um, you know, I, I have doubts about Bertrand Traere is the, is the answer there. So, you know, how Rudy Garcia de- evolves his team into next year, I think is really gonna be interesting. But I think that whether he plays a 4 2 one a 3 is his regular formation. Um, the cacare has made himself, you know, all but undroppable, uh, which is saying something given the money that they spent for Thiago Mendes in the summer.
1: He you know, nails it. I, also, just one little wrinkle from that match that i found so impressive from Kaká, which is he basically played three different positions in mm-hmm. one match. So he started on the right side of that three, then they moved him into a double pivot with uh, Guimarães, And then he actually went and played on the left side at the end of the match. And that four, two, three, one on the left. Like, it's pretty incredible that at 20 in your first European fixture, you go out there, you don't get taken off over 90 and you play basically all across the midfield. He's such a talented player. I love his energy. I love his pressing. His pressing is phenomenal. He just <laughs> he is in your face constantly up the pitch. He gives Lyon this completely different dynamic that they were missing with Toussaint in there, I think. And then just his ability on the ball. He, he's always looking to make a pro- progressive pass. He's always looking to retain it and shift it forward. It. He's just a really nice nice player to watch. It's
0: exciting. Yeah completely Uh, and guys um now juventus is a little bit outside of our jurisdiction and uh there is a get italian football news show out there for uh people who want more podcasts from from the get football group and they'll probably know more about you than, than we do but what did you guys think of the way they played and you know clearly the they clearly didn't play up to the potential you would hope for uh, from a team with that many talents, but
2: yeah, I think they really missed Dybala. I think that um, or Dybala, however one, one likes to say his name. Um, I think that playing this four-four-two and just trying to hit Ronaldo and Higuain with crosses, you know, lacked imagination. I mean, this is a team that's very expensively assembled, and you've got the likes of Pjanic, um, Bernadeschi, you know who are talented attacking players, but, you know, it it all, it all came down to, to putting the ball in the air and and hoping to beat, you know, Leon's, um, Leon's defense. And, you know, you had it that you had that chance from Benucci about 15 minutes from time. Um, Yeah, there, there, it's not, it's not as if, um, it's not as if there, this wasn't, um, there's another chance from Ronaldo as well. It's not as if this match wasn't there to be won by playing that way. But I just think it's really um, it really serves as a referendum on the construction of, of a side for a big club because you know I don't think that there's a coherence between uh, you know the way that Ronaldo plays and the idealized idea of sorry ball which we didn't see tonight I mean yeah. his his sorry at his best you know would shudder at the way this team th- team played tonight but I guess, you know, without, without Tabala, he was, it was needs must and playing that, that front two of two, you know, physical presences uh, was how he wanted to win the game. Again, it almost came off, but still, I, I think that, you know, take away the, the penalty that was uh, given against Memphis. Uh, and I, I think you've got probably a truer picture of the difference between the two teams. And it was, it was a, a UVA side who were, you know, frankly lacking any great deal of imagination.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think that's that's all on point. And, you know, for a lot of, I think, a really good way to tell the difference between the good sides and the really great sides now is just their ability to break down these low blocks. And I think with the great sides that you're seeing in Europe right now, and I'll use Bayern Munich as an example, they just dismantle teams that sit back and try and defend against them the whole match. And this Juve side just can't do it. And I I haven't watched a a ton of them this year. I have watched them in and out and they, they come up against the same problems over and over and over again. There's just no dynamism on the front line. And tonight you saw it. No, like hardly any runners in behind. How many times did you see a diagonal run? How many times did you see someone get behind Marcello? Like, You've got Marcelo sitting in central defense and there's no one even putting him under pressure, even challenging him to get out and run with them. It, it's so slow. It's, it's, it's just, they just look really lethargic. They don't look anything like Eric said, like what you want a sorry team to look like. Yeah. I think
2: also too, you know, you, you have, a, there is a player like that they have Juan Guardado, um, who I think, but I mean, you know, I think he's wasted at fullback in an, an orthodox four. Play with two strikers, but you know, at least play a three-five-two. Put in uh, Demiral—is De- De that that's that's his name—the younger defender.
1: Yeah, Demiral. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, play a three-five-two and and pu- push Cuadrado into a more advanced role. I, I think that you know that he's a player who you know we've seen turn turn matches for UVA time and again, um, and I think that. You know, his. I think the tactically, the, the, that's an issue as well. If you want to have that, have those physical, that burly physical front too, great. But think a little bit more about the dynamism of this team, and you know, the fact that you're lacking creativity, and and where can that come from on the pitch? And you know, the answer was, I think, could have been Quadrado a little bit more. But again, you know, this is still, um, this is still just a sort of a bumbling. Uh, response from Juventus to be quite frank
0: Mm, yeah Um, so Eric um, Lyon move on and are going to play Manchester City in the next round um, following uh, bad news for French football today that we'll gloss over which is Zinedine Zidane's first elimination from Champions League as a manager his first ever Still quite an astonishing feat, um, but it's sad that that it comes now. Anyways, uh we'll obviously have more on that in a preview show to come. But now that they're in the quarterfinal, led there by by Rudy Garcia, how do you think this is going to change the relationship between, you know, Lyon fans and and Rudy, who, you know, it's been a it's been a tense ride so far, not even a year, and uh, there's been ups and downs, but this is the highest point that we've seen so far for sure.
2: Yeah. I think that, I think that fans, and speaking as a fan, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest <laughs> about that. I, I think that, uh, that they've seen the fans with a modicum of intelligence, will have seen the good results that Garcia has fostered, despite the losses that this team has suffered through injury and suspension you have to think, too, I mean, the loss and Zenit, for example, I think they had four players suspended, uh, including including Alwar and Memphis in that match. Um, so there have certainly been occasions where things have con- seemed, seemed to be about to conspire against them, but you know, he's managed to get the results. And I believe also that, you know, if, if it does end up that, you know, don't play European football next year. I mean, I think that had this those last 10 matches of the season been played, I think that, that Leon would have had, had what it takes to have overcome at least one of Nissan ranks. Um So, yeah, I, I think that <laughs> that that idea of a steady hand to guide this team into what, frankly, is the unknown. I mean, I could see all of Depay, Aouar, and Dembele leaving. Um, and then where does that leave this team? Relying on youth? I mean, that's something that we've seen Garcia do in the past at Lille. He showed, He's shown an ability to know when to call upon these certain players. Look at the way he's he's... Integrated Guimaraes' talents into this into this side the way he's brought along Kakare. You know, there's more to come from this team. We talked we've talked about Melvin Bard on the show. Uh, he's someone I'd like to see more of. I, I think could even perhaps be the regular starter at left back despite uh, the fee paid for Koné. Um, and I, I think that you know the development of Cherki is another is another sort of elephant in the room. How he's going to come about. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to there's a lot to look forward to from the idea of Garcia leading this team, even if, you know, he's not playing champagne football all
0: the time. And before we move on to uh, other things, Kale, give us a quick prediction. Will there be a French team in the semifinals?
1: Oh man, that's tough. (laughs) I think, yes, I, I, I think PSG can get past Atalanta. We'll see how good Mbappe is if he's ready to go, but I think, they probably should have what it takes to get through. Lyon is, it's going to be an uphill battle, but hey, you never know. You know, they've got a chance. They've got pace up front. That Man City back line looks shaky at times. So take take your shot, whatever.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, anything else on, on this match that you guys want to talk about? I mean, Anthony Lopez,
2: again, you know, sure. that, that save uh, from the free kick. You know... When you have a keeper who's capable of of the near unbelievable, then there's <laughs> always a chance. I, I, you know I, I know he's not always been the most consistent, the most solid for Leon, but you know the times he's come up with massive saves, you know, again, going back to last week's uh, League final, you can't take that away from him that a goalkeeper with that kind of ability can can turn a single match in a way that some might not expect. I'm not saying I'm going to predict Leon to advance against City, but <laughs> but I think he's the good of player that gives him that hope.
0: But what do you think of the second goal, which to be fair is is a very powerful shot from from Ronaldo? Um, but he's kind of there. I mean, you know, he gets a hand to it, but it's just not quite strong enough.
1: I mean, I I said I I think he's probably got to save that, in my opinion. It's far enough. Like, it's a hard and powerful strike. I'll, i'll give him that but i think you would you would hope that your goalkeeper could make that save
0: he had a nice moment lopez uh after the match where uh he he went to celebrate in the kind of in the away end of the stadium where the Lyon fans would have been in you know in a different year uh they they would have been there to celebrate with him um which was i guess a, a kind of touching homage to them um and he, he he's used to that kind of stuff, Anthony Lopez. Sometimes I wonder if he's kind of pandering to them. Um, But he does have a long history of, of doing stuff with the fans. So good for him. So let's move on to some other news coming out of French football in the last few days. And uh, one thing in particular has been quite worrying. Uh, only two or three weeks before the start of Ligue 1, a number of clubs have had... Uh, cases of COVID among players and among staff as well. Uh, Lille was the earliest known one uh, a few weeks ago, with with four players out. But since then, Strasbourg have had a number of players. So have Nantes, uh, Montpellier, and Saint-Étienne have also had uh, one or two each in the last few days. Uh, Kale, you've written about this in uh, on uh, the website for Get French Football News. Um, it was it's apparently the second part of the French football farce, which you have been covering, although this is quite different from, from the previous stuff we've talked about. Uh, what is going on? Are there more cases, first of all, in France than, than in other countries among uh, football clubs? And how come this has happened? You know, Why is there a kind of boom in the numbers in the last few days?
1: I don't know if there's more in France among football clubs as compared to other leagues. Uh, I mean, also, France is going to be the first league back, so they're playing a lot of friendlies right now, so that also might be a byproduct. They're doing more
0: testing, so we're getting more results. Well, Um, actually, I mean, I'll just jump in because I I kind of know the answer to that question, which is that, I mean, I don't have the exact numbers to compare. There have been some cases in other countries, um, but it doesn't seem that there's been, you know, this many number this big a number in, in this many clubs like only a few weeks before the league starts because you know the other, other countries have been playing and it's been going on mostly okay I know in Spain there was a problem on the last day with one of the teams playing to stay up um, had a few cases but like if you look at the Premier League I mean ever since restart I virtually no one has has had a problem um, and Ligue 1 is having, you know, having to send a lot of players in quarantine right now, which is a concern. But sorry, um, keep going.
1: No, that's good. It's good to have the answer to that. Uh, yeah, I, th- you know what, this—it's a really complicated question. It's kind of a complicated answer. But part of what's going on right now in France, and Pierre Paul, you're there, so you might have a better sense of it than I is mm. that the numbers are showing that. Uh, over a seven-day, their seven-day rolling average in France is going up. I mean, I suspect that's probably a byproduct of society opening up a bit. Um, so because I think you're seeing these numbers in society go up and players are coming to play football, but then they're going back to their homes or they're going shopping or they're doing what else, whatever else they're going to do, I think you can probably expect these cases to also be occurring within football clubs. Now, there's another part of this question, which is the testing. And so if we take, for example, the cases at Strasbourg and Montpellier, uh, a lot of people have keyed in on this friendly match they played on the 28th of July. So in advance of that match, Montpellier tested their team. They got all negatives. And Strasbourg didn't. They had the test the last test they actually did was five days earlier, ahead of a friendly that they were playing against Nîmes. So and then it came out following that that there are, I believe there were eight cases, I think, in Strasbourg, and then there were cases, four to five cases at Montpellier following that match. So I think there's a question about how much you should be testing, when you should be testing. I mean, honestly, it's so complicated. There's also issues around there's a lot of false negatives with the test. So how many times do you have to test to make sure that you're getting you know, an accurate reading of whether anyone on the team has the virus? I think the leagues that you're seeing that don't introduce what they're calling these bubbles are mm-hmm. going to see cases occur throughout the season because it seems from where I'm sitting and from the research that I've done, there's just not a way to completely eliminate the virus from football if you're not eliminating it completely from society. So I think you can probably expect there to continue to be cases as the season goes on. What the LFP is now having to deal with is how do you manage that? How do you, one, reduce the cases? Because right now we're obviously seeing quite a few. In the last week, you you had Montpellier, Strasbourg, Nantes, and now St. Etienne. So all of this happening in one week is not a great look. So the LFP is going back to look at their protocols that they've come up with to, I I guess, reinforce them. We haven't heard yet what that's going to look like. And, you know, there's a great quote from the doctor at Strasbourg who said heading into the Montpellier match, he was talking to L'Equipe at this point, he said, you know, that they followed the, the protocols to the letter, but they don't know. They can't determine the origin of the contamination in the team. And as he says himself, it's difficult to tell because the virus c- circulates everywhere. So I think the,
0: mm-hmm. the French
1: league is just running into that societal issue. And I, I don't know how they they stop that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing with Strasbourg is that um, so they they um, they were in a kind of one week training camp or something in Evian, uh, the town which is near Switzerland, which is actually very close to where I am right now. Um, and the, Evian has a hotspot of, for the virus. I mean, like a cluster basically um, for the past, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks or something. And um, I'm assuming that's where they picked it up because like you said, they had that first game against Nîmes, which was also during the training camp where, you know, before that they tested negative. And then in between then and, and the game against Montpellier, um, they clearly got contaminated, um, and, and then Montpellier has passed it on <laughs> themselves because of that. But um, I think there's a difference. Probably, I mean, the thing is, it doesn't have to be uh, related to the environment. Depending on how you, as a, as a club or as a league, behave, or and you know how disciplined you can be. So. I don't know that it was a wise thing to come train in Ivian. Like I don't know if it's, it's if it's a good moment to do that kind of stuff. And I know more teams um, have been around the region here, which is um, kind of one of the not the worst part in France, but you know one of the more contaminated areas at the moment. Um, and so the reason I say it doesn't have to be related to the environment is if you look at if you look at say um, the, the Premier League, like I mentioned, had very few cases after restart. Um, during which, you know, I don't know exactly what the protocols were in England, but clearly the, the Premier League, uh, you know, had a very disciplined approach to this and ensured that uh, it both was testing, but probably the clubs themselves with, to their own players with what you could do outside of outside of um, the club. Um, they were probably quite strict with that, I imagine. And obviously the UK has been an area quite strongly hit by the virus similar similarly in America um the NWSL which is the women's league they played in you know a very strict bubble where they all came together in one location and basically you know quarantined as as a league separate from the rest of the world and that was quite successful there was no cases over the three or four weeks of of that tournament um so it, it is feasible like separately from from how the rest of the country is um, but I'm quite worried, like you say, Kale, that there isn't really a public, a publicly known protocol yet on the on behalf of the league. We don't know what league measures are, you know, how they're going to respond to cases. Um, you know, who has to be quarantined? Is it only the people who test positive, or do other members of the club have to also get quarantined in, in that event? Um, you know, and so I mean, for example, the UEFA has published their uh, uh, new rules for the upcoming Champions League season and how that's going to work in case of cases uh, in in clubs. And we haven't heard that from Ligue 1 yet. And I was also quite worried, uh, if we look at one example, at Nantes, the president, Valdemar Kita, had had an interview in L'Equipe a few days ago, earlier this week, in which he was saying, you know, we should lifting restrictions we these are athletes they're young men they'll be fine which seems like a completely irresponsible position uh to be pushing um and you know it's quite worrying that he thinks that but maybe he's the only one saying it and that there's other people also other people out there also thinking that too and that's even more worrying um to me,
1: not to be not to be overly cynical but like this is something that they're going to have to get under con- control and figure out fast because yeah. they already lost the end of one season. And again, not to be too cynical, but financially they can't afford to be having teams sitting out for two week periods and risk losing this season as well. You know, yeah. just, sorry, just to tack to that really quickly. I think, one of the differences you're seeing in France as compared to England and Germany and you know wherever else they came back is they're coming back and playing friendlies, which don't have the same rules as the competitive fixtures. And also, they're not coming directly out of this more sort of locked down situation, if that makes sense. When Germany came back, society was, I think, more restricted than France is right now. So you're getting this sort of butting heads of society opening up and then trying to play this football season in this controlled environment. And as much as you want to control the pitch, it's impossible to control things outside of it. So they've definitely got a major, major task on their hands.
0: I agree. And even if it's like, you know, well, especially at the very beginning, like, you know, if, if on match day one, we're already playing uh, fewer than 10 matches a week because some teams are in quarantine, you know, I don't know. We're going to be running after it all season and it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be worse than than two years ago when um, when because of the Jaunes movement and other stuff, they were canceling games left and right. It, it's going to be even more complicated than that, no question. Um, so yeah, that's a concern and I think we're all hoping that you know, they come up with a plan very quickly as to how to best address that um, so that we don't look silly again when the new season starts, which was supposed to be kind of Ligue 1's comparative advantage over the 2020-21 season that, you know, we'd be starting ahead of everyone else. Okay, so let's move on then to uh, something else. Uh, Eric, a couple of weeks ago after the Coupe de France final... Uh, in which uh, Saint Etienne lost to PSG, we kind of briefly mentioned about, we briefly talked about uh, Claude Puel's handling of the of the Stéphane Ruffier case, and I, I think I made the point that uh, Puel seems to often, you know, have these jobs where he's asked or where or where he decides to get rid of the old guard in the club and try to start a new project. Um, that has become a more substantial news topic. Uh, quite recently, actually, earlier today, um, as it has emerged that Saint-Étienne are looking to get rid of all four of their most expensive salaries. So that's Riyad Boudébouz, Wahbi Khazri, Yanem Vila, and Stéphane Ruffier, um, uh, who we already mentioned. Uh, what do you think of that situation and, and what's going on over at Les Verts?
2: Well, I, I understand that needs must for the club. Um, they're also... They've also been supposedly... They're also supposedly trying to get rid of uh, Luis Diony, Sergio Palencia, and Miguel Trau- Trauco. Um, so really a, a massive changing of the guard here. And it, it, it certainly comes as a surprise, I think. I think that um, there were a lot of bright moments from from Sante in that in that cup final. And we, you know, I mentioned on the show two weeks ago that I, I think we could we could see a lack of cohesion. We could see some potential for this side. Uh, but I think, frankly... That this remit makes sense in a lot of ways. There are a lot of players whose potential I think is is blocked. We can look at, uh, you know, the likes of uh, a Mari Camara. Um, um, the we also uh, can look at Jan Nevu, the 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 young uh, midfielder they signed. He looked bright as well. Uh, Ivan Neveu, sorry. Um, and I, I think also, you know, looking at the forwards, uh, Charles Abi, um, Maxence Rivera. Um, obviously, this you know obviously there's a lot of young potential in this team, but in concert with that, this is a team that you know had had a massive winless streak towards the back end of last season that I don't see as being necessarily qualitatively better, especially at the top end um, of their team in, in attack that is. Um, and I I think that were, are they if they're able to get this wholesale clear out through i think they're really leaving themselves open for relegation. now there are a lot of other teams that project to be fairly poor i think that neem uh you know look look on fairly shaky ground uh, i'm not 100 percent sure that the changes brest have made uh, are going to make them look decent lance don't look great coming up um but still all that being said are head and shoulders above those other teams are they are they or are they leaving themselves at real risk of going down? And so obviously if you're trying to create financial stability by getting rid of these big wages, yes that makes sense. But if the end result's relegation, a loss of again, this new television contract that's very lucrative, that's that's starting with this season, then I think Lever may be really shooting themselves in the foot here. I certainly understand, you know, I don't really see that a player like Kazri necessarily has a place in this team. Uh, same thing with Budabuz. I think we we had seen a, a really strong performance from Aucic in a friendly against Bordeaux a few days ago, and we we clearly know the potential he has to play that number 10 role effectively. Um, but I think some of these other these other moves, uh, Mbila in particular, I, I I sort of struggle to realize to, to come to grips with um, what their potential negative ramifications can be. And I think that this might be a giving, if, if this is coming from Puel, I think this is giving far too much cr- credit and power to a manager who for to me uh who oversaw this team struggle mightily in the league um far far below their means far below the effort that they put in uh in, in the second half of last season
0: well it seemed it seems to be that um the decision to get rid of those four well as as a kind of a whole seems to be coming from above puel um there's a quote from from one of the president's Roland-Romeyer, who's saying we're trying to reduce the the uh, salary, uh, the wage bill by 20 percent. And, you know, Puel just seems to have to be kind of executing that order, really. Um, which, you know, I, I guess he doesn't have a choice. He'll try to do it as, as best he can. Obviously, he wanted to get rid of some of them, especially Ruffier. Um, but he does... He is a coach who can manage young players. Do you think that's part of the reason that they think now is a good time to to do this?
2: I mean, sure, yes, but at, at the same time, you know, Buanga is also linked with a number of, of teams. He was he was linked yeah. uh, with a with a move to uh, Rassen Rossum, Leipzig in the January window. Um, there's been moves linking him with Nice. I don't think that looks probably is as likely to come off given they signed Ronnie Lopez and they still have Alexis Club But uh yeah, I mean if Bowanga goes and he's a he's a hot property, he basically saved the team from from relegation single handedly last season, he's probably worth about twenty million even with uh, factoring in difficulties as that have arisen as a result of, of uh, the pandemic. Um but if Boanga goes and you've got those those players going as well, I don't I don't see this team surviving. They're just you know, even mm. with a promising young defense and, and um, Moulin looking to be a decent keeper, uh, I don't think there's enough in, in that team's attack. Where, where are the goals coming from? You know, I, I like Charles Abbi uh, as a striker, but he's he's more of a, a player who is sort of a workhorse who's willing to pull people out of position and, and batter opposing defenses physically uh, rather than putting the ball in the back of the net. Um, you know, the goals came from, from Bouanga. If he goes, uh, this team are a dead cert for relegation, which is... Really a shame. I mean, even as uh, you know, as a, as a Professor Leon fan, uh, Saint Etienne in the league are a great thing. Uh, the crowds that they get at the Geoffroy Guichard, which again we may not see to that extent this season, um, mm. but the atmosphere that's created there and the history and tradition of this club, I think are, are really a massive asset for the league and for for romeo and, and Puel to be to be putting that at risk, frankly. Uh, just uh, you know, I, there's 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 got to be a more sensible and less dramatic way to resolve this unless Sinti are really uh, more financially hamstrung behind the scenes than we realize. Now, again, in France, you know, as, as regular listeners will know, we do have this thing called the, the DNCG who are very strict about club's finances. Um, for example, Lille, a lot of the mechanisms machination, behind why they're selling so much is they have an unfavorable lease, ter- they have unfavorable lease terms uh, surrounding the Stade Pierre-Mauroy that hamstring them financially. Mm-hmm. um and you know since they may be wary of suffering a, a points deduction or some sort of other penalty at the hands of the dan cg as a result of this um but a lot of these players are are not under contract for three or four or five years i, I don't think any of them um aren't out of are in under contract beyond uh, 2022 so maybe the, the thinking is there is still some value to them i don't know it just it just seems a bit of an over overstepping of what the club should do, but it seems it seems as if it's something that's being taken to the extreme. And I think it could really be problematic for them there in the next season.
0: Hmm. And and I agree with that completely. On the specifically on the uh, the Stephane Ruffier situation, um, he has so on the one hand they've said he he said he doesn't want to go, but he also doesn't want to be a sub. And therefore, Purell has told him, you know, you won't even be in the top three choice or something um, for goalkeeper. How, where is the standoff going? Like, it doesn't look like there's a solution, even though it, the obvious answer is, oh, he should go somewhere else. But it just doesn't look like it's happening. Do you know, you know, what? Can, how can they solve this? Uh,
2: I mean, it's not in a way that I think is, respectful to a club legend i think you know part of what's driving this is is uh, stefan Baich who's the likely to be the second string uh, keeper as as the season starts i mean i think he's kind of like this you know, we've seen paul bernardoni sort of be you know this figure in the shadows at bordeaux a very mm-hmm. young and promising keeper who you know wasn't getting his chance because there's a more established veteran and i think that that it, the club feels that it's time for by to have a chance uh, I think that you know he's looked very very good for France's under-19 sides. Um, uh, last summer he played at the at the under-19 uh, European Championships and looked good. Um, and I think that they can they see um, Moulin, perhaps as being more able to handle sort of this transition transitory role, um, if you will, transitionary role. Sorry, um, that mm. uh, that he, his ego is not to the the point where he, he'll make this more difficult. I, I think that you know if this is done well, a club can set itself up for a decade of success or more. I think we can we can relate this perhaps to Anthony Lopez's succession at, at Lyon, that uh, Remy Vercut was the was the backup to Hugo Ruiz, and when he came in, uh, it was a it was a slow transition, um, aided by injury uh, to Varcute. But still, that it, it wasn't such a, a difficult situation when it did come time for. Um very cool to relinquish those those the gloves, if you will. And I think yeah it's thing to get this right. Um, you know, or you know Baych could be the type of player who also makes takes his leave. I mean, we've seen a lot of young front young players leave French football uh, as a result of you know the on a part on their perception, rightly or wrongly. I think rightly in this split rightly in this place is that they're being you know ready to be given a chance, and they end up in Germany. They end up yeah, in Italy um there's the young uh defender at roma there I'm, I'm blanking on his name i'm sorry um who so i mean yeah there's there's just a lot of um there's a lot of of issues with with this and i think that um you know Rufi does need to go i, I think that, yeah. that that's why he's he i don't think he has the he's a fantastic player he's been a fantastic servant for the club but i don't think he has the right attitude uh you know he's been been reported he's Reportedly, a very aloof character. I, I don't know that he's necessarily like a uh, sort of camaraderie-building player. by from what I understand, that would, uh, you know, have the the charisma and, and and humility to to aid in this transition in a way that makes sense.
0: Yeah, he's also previously refused to be the number three goalkeeper for France. He would have preferred he preferred not right. being in the squad. Right. So he's kind of an interesting character, like you say. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's going to be, uh, it's it's not looking like it's going to be a very fun season for Saint-Étienne. It's um, some concern there as well. And obviously, we'll be here to uh, keep a close eye on them. That's all that we have uh, for you guys today. Thank you, Kale. Thank you, Eric. Um, we'll be back very shortly. Obviously, there's more Champions League matches uh, coming up next week involving French clubs. So keep an eye out for those uh, uh, preview shows, get get French football news shows. And also uh, actually our our friends from get Italian football news and get German football news have their own podcasts coming out right now. So uh, if you you like football from those countries, feel free to listen to that as well. Uh, So, and for more news, you can obviously... Follow GFN on Twitter at GFN or uh, check out our website at getfootballnewsfrance.com. Thank you for listening.